Welcome to the Berry Sex Show. Thanks for joining me. I'm Barry Cockroft and I'll be hosting this podcast with guest saxophonists from around the world. We'll be exploring the stories behind these great musicians with telling insights into how they got started and the ongoing development of their careers. Thanks for being here on this adventure and please subscribe for a new episode each week. The details of each podcast, including a transcript, the show notes and any links can be found at barrysax.com. Widely recognised as one of the world's leading classical saxophonists, Kenneth Che is certainly one of the instrument's outstanding proponents on any saxophone aficionado's shortlist. He burst onto the scene in 1996 as the winner of the prestigious New York Artists International Award, which resulted in an acclaimed debut recital at Carnegie Hall, after which he was hailed as a young virtuoso by the New York Times. Since then, he has been a frequent concerto soloist on five continents and featured artists at events such as the Triennial World Saxophone Congress and North American Saxophone Alliance Conference. Prestigious universities and conservatories worldwide, such as the Moscow Conservatory, the Paris Conservatory, have invited him to give masterclasses. He was recently a judge representing the USA at the 6th Adolf Sachs International Competition in Dinan, Belgium. Kenneth has been an active recording artist since his first CD for Crystal Records at age 23. His discography now includes a total of six Crystal CDs, presenting a wide variety of saxophone repertoire, most of it new, some with assisting artists, as well as six other releases and more in progress on Reax Records, Enharmonic Records, Arizona, University Recordings and MSR Classics. In 2009, desiring to give back to his home city, Hong Kong, Kenneth created the first Hong Kong International Saxophone Symposium, which attracted over 70 saxophonists from around the world to join the event. With the tremendous success of the premier event, Kenneth has formed the Hong Kong International Saxophone Society as part of an effort to facilitate more interest in saxophone performance, as well as to continue hosting the symposium every two years to expose Asian saxophonists to world-class saxophone performers and teachers. Kenneth is currently Professor of Saxophone at the University of Iowa, former President of the North American Saxophone Alliance, and current President of the International Saxophone Committee. More information and media can be found on his website at kenneth-che.com. It's now my pleasure to welcome Kenneth Che to the show. So perhaps you could tell us how you really got started on the saxophone. Yeah. Well, I started... Um my mom was was a music teacher for a long time when I was a kid, and and she always encouraged me to do music, um, which is unusual. You know, most parents say, "Don't do music; do something else." You know, do business or something. But um, she loved music, and she encouraged me to do violin when I was seven, and then she started me on piano on uh, when I was nine. But Need of those instruments kind of stuck with me. So, uh, but when I was in seventh grade, which was when I was 12 or 13, I decided to, I want to play a band instrument. And I wanted to play trumpet, actually. So I went, went to my uh, band director's uh, room. I said, hey, I'd like to play trumpet. And, and, he, and then he looked at my hands and looked at my teeth and he said, here you go. And he gave me a saxophone. <laughs> And not until later that I found out 
he needed a second alto in the band. That's why. <laughs> so I always say he's not a very inspirational start, but that's how I said I want to play trumpet. But I was given a saxophone, and I say, hey, you know, I, I never knew about this instrument, so I said, hey, I'll try. So you grew up in Hong Kong, right? Right. I mean, in Asia, in, in general, I mean, the the things that we do are. are not unlike in other countries, like choir, band, and orchestra. We didn't have jazz bands. Um, or even today, jazz is not a big, big thing. So even when I was studying saxophone, I never... Um, well, first of all, there was no teacher, really, saxophone teacher at that time. And I studied with my band director, who, who's a bassoonist. And then later on, studied with a clarinetist. And, and so... It was challenging, and I never really experienced jazz music either. And so, classical music was was really the the, the main thing uh, when I when I first learned the saxophone. Yeah. So, how did you transition or move yeah. from Hong Kong right all the way to the states? That's a big decision, right? Um, well, actually, I, I never thought about studying abroad at that time. But um, as I said, I didn't have a teacher, so I had to find some way to, to learn the, the tonal concept. Um, of course, at that time, I didn't really think about tonal concept or technique and all these things. I just thought, hey, I need to know what, what I'm doing, you know. <laughs> so I, I uh, listened to recordings, and there were only two recordings, LPs at that time, um, or CDs were around, but you know there were two saxophone LPs in our high school library, and um, and one of them I liked a lot, particularly, and listened to it. I, in fact, I made a made a copy on a cassette tape, uh, listened to it, you know, day and night, and I like it a lot. And uh, and one of the pieces on that was a Dubois concerto, so I listened to it a lot, and. And then one day when I was uh, maybe 10th or 11th grade in high school and somebody called me up and said, hey, Kenny, we have this master that coming from the U.S. to give a master class. Would you like to play for him? I said, oh, okay. <laughs> you know, I didn't, didn't, know, didn't even know what a master class was at that point. Uh, and so I went I, and I played for this master. And then during the master class, he played something. Uh, for the audience, and listen to it and say, wait a minute, that sounds really familiar, right? And so I, I look up his name, I look up the name on the LP, and sure enough, it was Eugene Rousseau. <laughs> and I was, of course, shocked, you know, at the, at the revelation. So, um, and immediately I went, he, he stayed in Hong Kong for, for a few more days, so I kind of like a kid following him around in you know, a practice room and took him around town. And, and it was a good, really good time together. And then the next year, he came back to give a recital in Hong Kong. And uh, being a mom, you know, my mom scheduled a dinner with him and his wife, at, uh, Mrs. Rousseau at that time. And, um, and we had dinner and she wanted me to study with him abroad, basically. Uh, there was an embarrassing dinner because, you know, as mom, she was telling how great I, I, uh, I was and, you know, <laughs> how talented that I was and I, he need, basically told him to, 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 to uh, take me, you know. 
Um, so really, that was the beginning of of my journey, and 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 I started, you know, applying for for Indiana University, where he was teaching at that time, and and uh, yeah, the rest was history. You did your undergraduate mm-hmm. with Dr. Rousseau, mm-hmm. and then your master's degree, and then a, a doctorate uh, at other places. Right. Well, actually, I started as an artist diploma at Indiana University uh, because I didn't think about doing um, an, a, a degree, actually. Just wanted to learn the saxophone, but then decided when I was there, hey, you know, might as well get, get college degrees. And so I changed to an undergraduate degree and then went on to master with him. And so I got kind of, I was doing three things at one time in, uh, uh, in a way, you know. Um, yeah, and then later doc- doctorate at University of Illinois with Deborah Rickmeyer. You know. How would you describe the, the differences in the teaching styles that you started to come across? For me, I think it's a little bit different in philosophy to others, maybe because of my Asian background. Uh, even today, I kind of sometimes tell my students about it, is I think of learning anything, really. It's like following one master. Like in Chinese Kung Fu, we call it the Sifu. You know, we follow one Sifu in, in that dojo, in a way, you know, in that. And then you just follow it for life. Um, so for me at that time, obviously, you know, the story I was just telling about Rousseau and how I found out about him. And so that really, for a teenager, it was, it was very deep, you know, uh, the meaning. So I kind of, so he was always, always would be my, you know, my mentor uh, uh, in my heart because just how I started and how he helped me during my studying. Um, and so for me, I think of a more linear learning thing, meaning I would stay with just one and I follow that way of playing and teaching. Not that I don't like the other ways or other how people approach things. It's just, I guess I'm a more loyal, loyal person, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, so I tend to just play on one team and don't think about others. Not that I don't respect others. I respect many of my, you know, colleagues nowadays of, you know, of course, first-rate teacher and players. And um, but I still, in my heart, I will still follow the same same sifu. You know, <laughs> you are teaching those same uh, types of students you once right, were. Right. Do you continue that tradition of teaching, or have you expanded? Um, yeah. Well, I mean. As I said, it was more just like my own feeling. Uh, maybe I shouldn't call it a philosophy, maybe just a feeling. Uh, especially in America, I, th- I think, and, and even Europe now, uh, people tend to like go around and study with different teachers, which is, I think is a great experience and, and necessary almost uh, for learning. Uh, but for some students, it, it can be confusing, especially some that are extra analytical about things they will go hey how come i when i do some things like that and then the other person say no and then you go to the next person and say uh no the third way and then for you know you get just completely confused in your learning i think what i usually tell my students now is you know just be careful whenever you you know go around learn i said you know if you 
try things and, and you like it, that's the way you want to follow, then try to stick with it, you know, and try not to, you know, you can never please everybody. So it's important is how you as an artist express yourself and how you do things and follow that um, to that. And because it's no fun if you go to a teacher and when a teacher tells you something and you don't like it and you don't follow and don't do it, then what's the point? Uh, and it's not very respectful either. So I think I would rather just stick with one and then, you know, do that than trying to, you know, <laughs> argue with another person or something, you know. Would you have one piece of advice for yeah. a student starting out? What's one thing you think could apply to most people that could really help them? <laughs> yeah, that's a, that's a heavy question. Um, try to always become what you um, want to be, meaning uh, I think the easier way to put it is just become your degree. Meaning, if you want to be a performer and studying music, then do everything you can to become that. If you want to be a band teacher, then do everything to become that, you know, in your, in your study. And then obviously you can't just do the minimum and, you know, the credits are, you know, considered minimum really for, for artists. I think we have to, on the side, we have to go out and, and build connections with, with your colleagues outside of your school, uh, do extra things like performances. You know, in the beginning, you're not going to earn money, you know, uh, but just the, you know, experience and the, really the connection that you need uh, with friends is very important. You know, it's going to help you down the road. Do you think it's a good idea for musicians to try and earn their living through playing? Well, for some instruments, maybe, but definitely not for a classical saxophonist, you know, unfortunately. Um, but, you know, again, like, like yourself, obviously, it's, it's doable outside of in an academia setting, you know. You have, but again, um, what I said was becoming degree two is also you have to be creative with your, you know, with your career. You know, like yourself, you work a lot of, you know, other businesses and, and just ideas. A lot of always constantly have new ideas in your life, and which is really, really important, I think. One thing I've noticed with saxophone players is right. they do seem to be quite creative in finding other things to do right. to, to help. <laughs> we to almost support. have to. <laughs> almost have to, right. because they're not the same opportunities as, say, a violinist, right. where there's, if you like, a right. career path you could follow. Right. We have to be much more creative in right. creating our own path. Right. And I like that about saxophone players. They're Absolutely. often quite creative in different ways. Right, 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 right. Yeah. Is the way that you practice now uh -huh. as a seasoned professional uh -huh. different to the way that you practiced when yeah. you were learning? <laughs> well, definitely different. <laughs> uh, well, as you know well yourself too, sometimes it's hard when, you, when you're older now with family and obligations and you know, with your students, with your family, with your kids. And it's just much harder, you know, time to practice, harder to come by. So, um, so whenever I talk to younger students, I say, just practice as much as you can now, you know, because you're building the foundations later when you really don't have a lot of time and you have to be able to pick up and, and do it, you know, quicker. 
you just don't have uh, you don't have hours to warm up and do scales before you actually play something. You know, I always um, do laugh when I hear students complaining that they don't have uh, enough time. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Just wait. <laughs> yes. Yes. I'm a little curious about memorization. Yes. And I wondered if you had any specific approaches that you have, uh-huh. whether you think it's a good idea to uh-huh. use memorization, mm-hmm. if there's some efficient ways to do it, or if mm-hmm. there's times where you're actually better off with the score in front of you. That's, that seems to be an in thing nowadays. I think people talk about it more, and, and I think a lot of saxophonists are getting to want to play from memory more. I see it more in competitions and, and performances in general. Um, I don't have a very strong feeling whether one should, like, you have to, you know, play from memory or else you're your uh, inferior performer. I don't f- believe that. In fact, I have many conversations with concert pianists that they, they all complain about, you know, the, the pressure of having to play from memory all the time in a concert. They expected to do it. And, and most of those pianists I talk to, they say, you know, if they are given a chance, they would use music, you know. Um, so I, I, you know, for me personally, I enjoy playing from memory sometimes, uh, purely for really just, just the, um, the feeling of knowing the, the piece well enough, the music, and also um, that I don't have to worry about looking at something when I perform and just really feel uh, the music and my communication with the audience. Really, those are the two things that I, I feel uh, important if I were to do uh, play perform from memory. Uh, I never just do it for the sake of just see how I can memorize this difficult and long piece and perform it, you know. And so, and in terms of methods, I again, each person is different. I personally actually like to perform a piece with music for maybe a couple of times so that I can feel comfortable enough and then I would just do that committed to play from memory from from there on um, only a few occasions that I have to like I'm forced to play from memory well I said forced because you know um, uh, I have to learn a piece very quickly and, and it's a concerto with the ensemble so I you know trying to do that and and that is just, you know, doing what what everybody does is you do a lot of repetition in sections and small, small chunks. Uh, try not to rush it, you know. Could you tell me about your typical practice session? Yeah. Not about nowadays. How, yeah, nowadays. <laughs> right. Not about how long it is, but more right. how is it structured? Right. Well, I. Th- um, you know, it's kind of like Maso Mew was asked, you know, whether he still practiced scales, you know, when he was teaching a consumer, he says, what, what scales, you know? But you just don't have time because whatever time you have nowadays, you just have to practice your next performance for, for the next performance. So um, I would say that I would try to maybe play a few long turns and maybe 15, 20 minutes of warm up if I even have that. And then I'll just go straight to, to the repertoire that I have to prepare, you know, recital, concerto, uh, music. Um, in a way, it's a good thing, you know, going back to being creative is when you have more projects, 
it actually helps you to to want to practice even when you don't have time. You're forced, right? You have to perform, and and uh, and, and when you're at a certain stage in your career, people expect you to give results. You know, uh, you don't have the the leisure of making a lot of mistakes anymore, uh, like when you're in student. You know? um, and so those projects kind of help me to, you know, keep keep my practicing up uh, in a way. And and um, yeah. So in terms of routine, I don't I don't really have a routine besides working on what I need to uh, work on according to the schedule of my performances. Yeah. Really. So essentially, the the upcoming performance right. creates the motivation. Oh yeah, uh, yeah. for the practice. Right. Whereas I guess students, the motivation is getting better. Right. Not necessarily the next performance. Uh-huh. It's quite a different. <laughs> yes, of course. I, I mean, I, I uh, you know, Rousseau always says you. Uh, he actually he learned it from Masumiu. Your own race you never arrive. So you really just you have to keep going. And I believe that. Uh, of course, I want to improve too. Um, but yeah, mostly now is is performance oriented goal. But you can still improve each for your each performance that you do. You know, um, I, I try to shoot for that anyway. This is a very personal question. Yeah. Do you have a favorite piece of music that you like to play? <laughs> uh, yeah, that's always difficult. Um, I mean, besides rock me, <laughs> uh, I've heard of that. <laughs> yeah. Um, no, that's always fun. In fact, recently, I, one of my daughters asked me to visit her school, and the specific request was rock me. <laughs> Seriously. Uh, so that was great. I mean, rock me is always fun to do. And, and um, uh, if I had to choose, I think my favorite concerto. Uh, would be well. I have two actually. One is the Dubois, and uh, one is the Larson, Larsenrich Larson Concerto. Um, so those two pieces I like. Well, Dubois being because I first started out listening to Dubois a lot, uh, and that's the really the piece that got me started, uh, really serious about learning to play the saxophone. So that that's a very meaningful piece, and the Larson is just I like the the melody and. You know, in the tonality that that it gives. Um, I mean, other than that, I, you know, I I work with a lot of different composers like yourself, and um, so I try to immerse myself in in that person's you know emotions and feeling, um, and and each the the interesting thing each of them are very different in a way. It's not just you know. Writing for saxophone is a saxophone piece. Um, it's very individual, I think. So I try to get into their mind and, and interpret the way that they they want uh, in their music. It's about ten years since I wrote "Rock Me" for uh-huh. you. Wow, has and it been ten? Yes, yeah, it's uh, <laughs> it's it's maturing. Yeah. <laughs> but one th- really funny thing uh-huh. that I noticed with that piece once uh-huh. you started including it in your repertoire, yes, was I could tell where you were in the world. Oh uh, yeah. <laughs> because every time you played that piece, yeah. people would start buying it. <laughs> and I would know, oh, Kenneth's in Taiwan. <laughs> well, yeah. <laughs> it, yeah. Was, it was great. Was but uh, for me as a composer, uh-huh. it's crucial that music is played by uh-huh. people who can take the uh-huh. music 
to other audiences and to right. other people. And, sure. and that's one of the things that allows a piece to become part of a repertoire, to mm -hmm. spread. Mm -hmm. It has to be performed. Right, right. So the composers that you've worked with, and I mm -hmm. think you've had, what, more than 30 pieces mm -hmm. written for you, mm -hmm. do you find that, that you've got some intimate connection with those pieces because of your connection with the composer? Mm. Oh, absolutely. I... Um, you know, often now, especially nowadays, the economy is, is well, it's getting better, but we don't have a lot of money, as you know, you know, musicians. And, and so we just can't, you know, put down $50,000 and, and commission a famous composer to write a concerto. Um, so often people do consortium, you know. And so, which is a great, great uh, idea and great concept uh, uh, by itself. But I personally would rather work directly with the composer um, because I, I believe in the uh, the connection and the communication between the the two people and the the creation of that work is is deeper. I think. Versus just, hey, let's write a saxophone concerto, please, you know, and then they, they write something and then say, okay, you know, we, we'll, we'll all premiere it. And then usually those pieces, very rarely do we have pieces that really stay around with the large consortium. But when you have individual, um, um, not necessarily tailored, but, you know, like custom, you know, built for, for that, uh, performer, you have that deep connection and you, you actually tend to perform it more. Um, and that's usually what I, what I try to do anyway. So I would say, I don't have a lot of money, but I promise you I'll play it, you know, all over the place. And, and sometimes composers are like, okay, yeah, that sounds great. You know? In the end, we have to play music that is compelling to listen to. Oh, absolutely. And I yeah. think anything that can strengthen the quality of the end result, right. whether that's the personal relationship right, right. or working together, I think uh -huh. is vital, right. as opposed to the cash reward where right. they're getting paid regardless right. of whether it's a right, good right, piece right. or a bad piece. That's right, that's right. No, I mean, of course, composers have to eat too. So <laughs> I understand that, especially the you know freelance, or not freelance, like the people that are not teaching at an academic uh, environment it's, it's very challenging I mean they have to you know live on commissions I understand that so but it's just harder I think overall yeah. do you have something in mind mm -hmm. that will allow you to have a long injury free career <laughs> yeah as we talk, talk about it earlier um, in the beginning um, about physical fitness I try to you know exercise every week you know try to keep keep up with um, um, just the physical demand of just holding the, the instrument you know it's heavy you know? Um, and and I try to keep keep my arms muscle a little bit stronger so that you know I don't get um, you know tendonitis uh, or things like that you know usually the problems happen is because of weak uh, muscle support uh, and so I think it's important to keep up uh, but also you know just like when I was in high school I have to sacrifice something if I want to focus on my art you know and so if I not that you can't do sports but you know we hear a lot of scary story of, of skiing and and uh, uh, skating and things like that, that you, you break something, you know, a lot of times. 
And so I try to, I know it's kind of <laughs> shippies, but uh, you try to, I try to avoid those kind of sports. So I don't, um, in fact, I've never, uh, uh, I've never done ice skating until just recently, my first time in, in life. Um, yeah, because I'm also all afraid, all afraid that when I fall down, I'll put my hand and then the next person will come and then my fingers are gone. Did your career, did you have a plan mm-hmm. or did it evolve from one opportunity to the next? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I also talk to a lot of young players too, is they sometimes don't understand how it works, I feel like. Uh, a lot of them, they feel like, oh, as long as I'm a good player, you know, people will knock on your door. And that almost never happened, frankly. I mean, unless you either you have a lineage from a very famous family of, of musicians or big names, or if you're a first tier kind of instrument like piano, uh, violin uh, singers, and uh, or you have a great agent. I mean, if, if you have a great agent, just being a classical saxophone, you know, it's already the opportunity is not that many, you know. And so I think still what I mentioned earlier is the just being a good person, you know, you have to develop to be a positive person, to have a good personality that people actually want you to be around them, you know. Uh, I mean, it sounds funny, but it's true. A lot of uh, some artists I know, some players I know that have a, more, a stronger personalities and people don't really want to be around. It's not going to help your career, you know, for sure. Uh, so I think it's good to develop a positive, more positive outlook as a person and, and uh, build a connection with friends and, and, and uh, colleagues in general. Um, and then I always tell my students too is try to think about what are you trying to offer? I mean, in a way, it's a still a business dealing, you know, even in the art. They pay the tickets to come see, but you have to give them something in return. You know, what are you trying to offer them? Whether if it's the type of music that you're specialized or whether, you know, um, beautiful tone quality or, you know, whatever that, that, that may be. Um, Think about something that you want to offer them, you know, or, or special that you can do, uh, if, if possible. And then I think when you have something unique, I think people will start um, uh, asking you to do things, I think. But it takes time. I mean, uh, one time I talked to a very wise man in Japan. Um, he was a, actually, he, he wasn't a, a professional player, he was just a technician fixing horns. Um, but very famous, well-known. And uh, I asked ask him, so, you know, about career. And he said, give yourself 10 years. And it's true. And, and, and almost to the, to the point of 10 years. I remember that was when I had a lot more opportunities. And, and because the audience base, it's already built by then. And, and uh, so a lot of professional quartets, for instance, excellent quartets, yeah, they don't have full house on the first day, you know. It took, it took them 10 years to build a to base. So. so persistence and perseverance. Persistence, perseverance, and patience. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. You've done many albums. Mm-hmm. How important is recording to you personally? Yeah, I think um, 
being creative creative about that also would help you. Uh, it now I think today is a little bit different than when I even when I first started. Uh, is we didn't have a lot of recordings. I mean, there were of course many great recordings, uh, but uh, even when when we started off, a lot of um, they weren't that. I don't know, maybe hundreds, but nowadays it's into thousand, probably maybe even more. Uh, and so the competition is is really great. Um, but so my um, uh, feeling about recording is really I'm doing it for myself. I'm not doing it for money. <laughs> you know, I mean, we don't we don't make money. Sometimes uh, it's always amazed when I talk to some other instrumentalist. Even one time I talked to an iPhone iphonium player and, and he could actually sell enough cd to to pay for the next project i was like how do you do that <laughs> as a euphonium player. Um, but yeah it's it's really just for my my own creative outlet in a way you know projects but it did help in, in the beginning of a career where uh i was i was fortunate enough to work with uh, crystal records and some other labels that actually help propel my career but today, you know, as you know, the self-publish is a big thing now, and and because of the internet and Facebook and all those, you can almost do it without any other help, you know. Um, but again, you know, the bottom line is, what are you offering the audience that's different than the person next to you? We seem now to be surrounded right. by distractions. Right, right. How do you manage yourself? this constant grabbing of your attention from right. messages or contacts or whatever it is. Wait, let me, let me check my phone. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, it's, uh, yeah, it's kind of, you know, having kids too is we understand the temptation and difficulties uh, of just having that phone always there and you always look at messages. It's, but, you know, frankly, it's not like we always get, get phone call or, or text to say, you know, hey, you can you come play a concerto, you know? <laughs> We're just looking on, 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 you know, emails and Facebook and things. Um, I think as long as you you um, just think of it as a, again, connection with your colleagues and friends and families versus using it as a pure, you know, uh, uh, platform to show off your work I personally don't think that that should be the goal you know on, on social network uh, just simply because you're going to end up you know either uh, looking at everybody else what they're doing and trying to compare and things like that. it's just not a healthy I don't I personally not a healthy way of, of using it um, but it's nice to know if, if you know you have a new new composition coming out or you're doing a new project it's go oh, wow that's neat and you know and that we get get connected that way you know do you find your students are managing the distractions they're trying to practice and and master their instrument are they too distracted no actually i i was surprised that most of my students don't don't go to facebook that often <laughs> Uh, I actually go there often because I, I update like 
if they have a recital, I would put it on on our studio website and and Facebook page just to you know promote their events and and things like that. So it depends on the, the person, I think. So what what does your typical saxophone lesson look like as as a teacher? I've changed over the years now. Uh, in the beginning, I used to be a lot more structured, meaning they come in, I would start with just scales and technical thing, just start with all the keys of the scales and, and technique, just do it, go through it. And then we'll go to maybe etudes and then, and then music. Nowadays, I try to teach the students to be responsible for their own routine, lesson routine. Like, you can't just come in and expect me to spoon feed them, you know. Like, I'm here, teach me something, you know. <laughs> but I said, you know, you have to come in with some questions uh, and or reflection from your practicing, like what did you learn or, uh, or what did you fail or how did you fail in your practicing this week? Um, and what kind of revelation did you find, you know, like new fingerings or things like that, you know, that they need to, to show me that they actually put in some thoughts in their, their learning process versus me just giving them uh, uh, assignments and then they just do it and that, 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 that was it, you know. So that's pretty much nowadays I want them to come in and give me, show me what they want to do, you know. If they have questions about music, a piece of music or, you know, fingerings and things like that, they have to ask for it, you know. Do you have a vision of how you might like your students to remember you? Yeah, I guess I'm not at that stage yet, maybe. (laughs) Maybe when I'm closer to retirement, maybe, maybe. Uh, I want them to feel that, you know, I've helped them with with their their learning, but not just on the saxophone, I think, but also as a person, how to handle things and and like that. Um, Yeah, again, I think maybe because of my background from Asia, and just my upbringing, I'm not the most um, buddy-buddy type of teacher. Um, I mean, I or even Dr. Rousseau, you know, he was pretty. Um, uh, what, what, how should I describe it? He he was not distant in a negative way, but he's the teacher. You know, he will always be my teacher, and so there's this separation in that uh, that you know demands respect and and you know and so I feel that not that I, I want that kind of separation necessarily because I'm not really too much older although some of them I think I'm a lot older but uh, so I I still want to have a close relationship with them um, but I, I hope that I, I can um, you know show them you know that you can be you know, you have a mentorship and also a friendship at the same time, I think. Touring. Touring seems to be a big part of your right. performing. Yeah. You've been, you've been to many places. Uh-huh. And I was looking on your website uh-huh. recently and I saw uh-huh. you had a list of highlights. Uh-huh. And it's quite a long list. Uh-huh. And you must be accumulating some great experiences as you tour. Right. Is there something that comes to mind from your highlights, a uh-huh. place you've been, an experience you've had that really sticks in your mind? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> that's always a hard uh, question to answer because I I mean, I don't want to sound like that, 
you know, some places are better than others, and, 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 but there are definitely places that I've always wanted to visit. Uh, I mean, seriously, even not just because you're talking to me now, but Australia was one of the places I was really excited to visit when I first went there. Um, you know, I always hear the outback and things like that. <laughs> and and um, plus I have a lot, you know, students from Australia. So I, it was a really, really interesting in trip. Actually, the more memorable places, believe it or not, are places like deep, like in Inner Mongolia, for example, in, in China, uh, where when you see people don't have a lot of money and don't have a lot of things. I mean, they have to rely on whatever that they have in school, provided by the school, and, and the enthusiasm that they have to learn. That's to me is is it's amazing when I visit places like that, and so I always kind of share those stories with my students and kind of say, hey, you know, you're very fortunate. <laughs> yeah. So I think when I travel, I usually you know experience that kind of things versus you know, oh wow, this place. I even hear in in Blitz of Slovenia is gorgeous outside. In the podcast, people can't see, but it's it's a beautiful view outside of your room here. Um, so of course, I mean the the views are great, but I think I I focus more on on the people. I think. Yeah. How do you actually fit your touring in with your teaching mm-hmm. and your family life, and how do you juggle those different activities? Yeah, this is an often asked question, um, and my answer always to to my student is, there's no free lunch. Somebody somewhere is is pain you know uh, when you I mean you know well too you have a family and so whenever you travel you know your wife is pain because she has to pick up the extra load that you know it's left over with your kids and things like that and household thing and I think um, I mean you it, of course, it begs the question. So, so why are you doing that if you if you're making your your family suffers? Um, I mean, frankly, I don't have a, a really a good answer for that because we just know that that's what we we do. You know, that's what we do, <laughs> and so we travel, we perform, and and um, and of course, I you know try my best a lot of times to 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 not be away so much. Um, and so you have to somehow strike a balance, I think. Uh, it's difficult because if you don't travel, if you don't go out, you don't get con- connections, right? You don't meet people. And if you don't know anybody, nobody's going to ask you to do things. <laughs> Simple as that, right? And then your career is kind of down and then you might get depressed or things like that. Um, and so, um, yeah, I don't have. Unfortunately, I don't have an easy answer for it. But somebody just. I, but I think just enough to th- to know that somebody is paying for your whatever that <laughs> you have. <laughs> I don't know this about you, but uh-huh. do you improvise? I would say no. I used to play more jazz when I was I was in Hong Kong, uh, but again, I wouldn't call it the jazz that we were playing in the in America. In in any ways, I like I like listening to jazz and if I have to do it I'm pretty sure I can but it's just to achieve that level that that 
you know, I'm okay with, it, it's going to take too much work. <laughs> uh, and it's just, as you know, it's not, you just have to get comfortable with it and the language especially. Uh, and that takes time. That takes time. Um, so I decided, you know, I guess some point in my career that I, I just have to focus on one, one area. Um, and, uh, but I always tell students too is that doesn't mean that you don't understand the style or be able to do it if you're called to do it, you know. Um, you just have to work harder. <laughs> How do you find a way to play a piece of music that brings something new to it, but without perhaps upsetting the traditions as well? Uh, yeah, that's a good good question. That's kind of related to what I was saying of what do you have to offer that's different. Uh, and that, you know, kind of related to it, the interpretation you know, what is your, are you able to interpret in a way that is appealing to the majority of the audience, for instance? Uh, now, obviously, that's not really the only goal. Um, there are a lot of artists that are, you know, alienating the audience even, you know, but then they become very famous. You know, we know the examples of a lot of pianists and composers. Um, and so... Um, I try to again when I when I listen to a piece of music, I try to to really uh, listen and imagine what the audience, uh, what the composer is trying to say in that. And I all I'm trying to do is just maximize what the composer is saying, even to a point maybe the composer even didn't even know that mm -hmm. that oh wow that that's cool. Um, then I would try that, you know. For the composer, and then, and then if he or she likes it, then then yeah, I think I've accomplished something. Uh, so mostly, I just want to maximize the expression that's already presented on the page. Now you ready for some rapid fire? <laughs> rapid fire question. Okay. Here we go. You may have already answered this. Okay. If you just had one piece yes. that you could play uh -huh. forever, <laughs> okay, what would it be? Oh man, one piece. Oh, that's that's tough. Um, uh, well, I I <laughs> I mean I was joking a little bit, but actually it's true. I might I might when my in my tombstone I might have rocked me on on it because <laughs> I mean everybody where I go people just expect me to play that, uh, and so I guess you know I think definitely rock me could be one of the pieces. Yeah. <laughs> You've got only one hour to practice. Okay. How would you spend that hour? Oh, man. Well, if there's one hour, I would play long tones. You'll go, why? Because <laughs> that's really what I, how I started when I was in high school because I was no, there was not a lot of material. There I, my teacher wasn't there. There was no teacher, really. So there was nothing to do. So I just played long tones, try to, try to make it beautiful. <laughs> so that's how I started. So in a way, I kind of missed that time alone you know playing long tones it's kind of weird <laughs> who do you consider to be one of the most successful contributors to the saxophone uh, like beside eugene rousseau my my former teacher um well of course i think jean marie long Dags is definitely one 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 of the many actually uh, it's hard whenever you, you name names. Uh, uh, I don't want to, you know, 
miss anybody, but there's just so many. But Shomai Lundex especially, I, even though I never studied with him, uh, I mean, I know you studied with him. I, I never studied with him. And um, I mean, our, our relationship was just purely just from knowing each other and meeting in conferences. And I, I actually, he was, she, he was very always nice. He's always nice to me, and and when I visited him in Bordeaux one one time, and he let me stay there for a couple of nights, and we had dinner, and and um, he was cooking some duck in that time, and we had a lot of Bordeaux wine. Was, we spent a lot of quality times listening to recordings, thing, and and just the amount of work that man did, it's incredible. I mean, as you know, and he spent a lot of hours, days and nights, just. Talking about saxophone, you know, everything he he does is about saxophone. So his contribution is is great. If we learn from our mistakes, right, is it okay to make them? Of course, I mean, you, you, it's necessary. There's no such a thing as no mistakes. You you have to learn from mistakes. Yeah. <laughs> and what's the most important thing that you do personally before uh-huh. a performance? And I don't mean to sound funny, but I do actually pray because it kind of gave me a peace. And, uh, and in a way, I also kind of dedicate a performance each time. Um, and so, so in a way, that is my worship in, on stage. It's my act of worshiping in a way. So, yeah, I get praying and, and uh, actively relax, uh, relax your mind, yeah. Could you look back to when you were just starting out? Yeah. What would you tell your younger self? That's an interesting question. I never thought of that. Do you? Did you have? Did you think of something like that? I think personally I would say if you have something that you believe in, uh-huh. stick at it uh-huh. no matter what anyone else tells you. Ah, uh, okay. That would be for me. I see. Yeah, that's, that's good. That's good. Yeah, I think because... <laughs> Uh, interestingly, I mean, I never, I never, I guess because I was, um, you know, I studied in a boarding school and then after that I, I went, went to the States by myself. So my parents weren't there to tell me, you know, not, uh, not to do anything or something like that. So I kind of just, that was the thing that I did, you know, playing the saxophone and music. So I never had, had doubt about that. Um, I, w- I would say if I had to think of something quickly right now is is just do more than 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 I was doing even you know because I feel like sometimes you get distractions like you know you um, you know doing doing other things outside than your career sometimes I I feel like I need to focus even more now is there something right. you're working on. Um, that you'd like to tell us about uh, a new album or a project? Yeah, this this year especially has been quite busy, um, and I'm fortunate enough that at my university they have a lot of uh, support for creative projects like recording funding. So it's really a really a, a, a unique situation because not not too many places have have that like regularly every year. So. Um, so this year I started a project with some of my f- colleagues in the, at the university. We're doing recording three pieces. One of them is a um, saxophone concerto uh, by Kirk uh, O'Riordan, an uh, American composer. That He wrote that piece actually for Dr. Eugene Rousseau's 76th birthday celebration. 
And so I premiered that piece, and so finally I have a chance to, to play that. It's with chamber, chamber group concerto. And then uh, the other two are also chamber music, like The Creation of the World by Mio and the Kurt Weill, the Three Penny Opera Suite. And so that's a, that's a, I think, an exciting. Um, I don't know if any in the university actually have faculty done recording like that together. So I think a unique thing. And also, I'm f still finishing my uh, sonata, my volume two sonata recording. I've, I've finished recording it just now, editing. And then I also started um, another project is um, just yesterday I was joking with somebody. I said, you know, talking about quart saxophone quartet. Uh, I think Claude Delon was talking about, I always wanted to play, but it's just the members kept leaving because of, you know, other things and and so he ended up playing by himself you know it's kind of similar in a sense you know for for me it's hard to find three other members that are just as dedicated and have a close in close proximity that we can rehearse all the time right or even play projects together so this third project i'm doing is is recording myself but i'm playing all four parts multi-track <laughs> Multi yeah it's, it's a fun project I mean, it's not a you know anything special but uh, it's more for myself to have, have fun you know. now I'm sure there's a lot more to talk about but yeah. where can people find out more about you yeah speaking of Facebook you know I'm, I have a Facebook page um, I don't really do a, too much you know sometimes if I'm come going to places I'll just send a photos here and there or let people know uh, what I'm doing but that's really the extent I don't really like journal on the Facebook <laughs> instance, um, things like that. But people can, can definitely see me on Facebook. And also I have a website, kennethdeschair.com. And, and again, the I think people, most of people, they even just have Facebook page versus a web, web page nowadays. Um, so, But I, I do try to update it uh, once in a while. <laughs> You've made such an incredible contribution to the saxophone mm -hmm. already. No. What's next in the future? Um, well, one thing I'm passionate about is um, I still think, you know, after all these years, uh, when I listen to, I mean, really advanced players um, in competition, international competitions and performances like that, I mean, wow, they're really, really high level in terms of their technical ability and, and sometimes musical, but a lot of things that could be even easier in terms of just making it effortless in their performances or some of the things that they shouldn't have to struggle with, for instance, uh, autismo range, uh, uh, low register control, or just control in general. So, I mean... Uh, for the past, I guess, 10 years or so, I mean, I'm doing a lot of the, you know, lectures on just the mechanics of saxophone controls. Um, and speaking earlier about teaching methods and, and things like that, I, I, I still believe that there are some ways that could be easier for people um, to achieve. So that that's kind of my goal, hopefully, eventually. I don't know if it's still an in idea to write a book or something. I hope, hopefully... That's my goal is to write something uh, to tell at least my side of story of, of um, I want people to to not they, with that level of ability they should be able to do it 
make it even easier so they don't have to struggle so much and uh, have a higher percentage of, of, of success, I think, uh, <laughs> on control. So. All right. Kenneth, thanks for your time. Yeah, thanks, Barry. And, uh, I appreciate it. Let's go and play in the, the snow. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Let's go. <laughs> Just before you go, a quick reminder to let you know that show notes, any links, and a full text transcript are available at barrysax.com. You can subscribe for a new episode each week. And thanks again for joining me and my guests on The Barry Sachs Show.